My name is Rob. This is episode one of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right, so I went back and forth on what topic to cover for the first episode of Folly Coffee. Do I make it business-related about, like, the start of Folly Coffee or, like, selling coffee or my experiences in that? Uh, do I make it about uh, roasting or where we roast or very specific things like uh, different types of fermentation within coffee and make it, like, super coffee nerdy and all that stuff? Ultimately, I decided, when in doubt, keep it simple stupid. So... Episode one of the Folly Coffee podcast is going to be everything that goes into making a great cup of coffee. Now, obviously, this is a topic that can be split into tens of hundreds of podcast episodes, but I'm going to give just a very type, uh, very top line uh, kind of explanation of my perception and reality of what goes into a great cup. Uh, the first step that goes into it is growing. Uh, there is the importing, exporting of coffee. Uh, there is the roasting of coffee. And then obviously the preparation of coffee. And so thinking about these four topics, I'm going to go over them uh, at a very high, uh, very uh, high level detail. High level? What does that phrase mean? So when somebody says high level of detail, or I'm going to keep it very high level so if I say that I'm looking at it from 30,000 feet, that means I'm using a very low amount of detail. But if I say I'm using a high amount of detail, that means I'm using very specific details. What I'm trying to say is that I'm not going to include a lot of details. It's going to be a 30,000 foot view of what goes into a great cup of coffee. So starting with growing. Uh, coffee is grown in various regions around the world and everybody's got their own opinion on where the best cup of coffee comes from. Oh, it has to be from this region. It has to be from that country. It has to be grown in this way. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily true. It comes down a lot down to taste preferences. But the very first thing that goes into a great cup of coffee is Arabica coffee. Now, this is a term that has been thrown around the industry ever since Starbucks really made it popular uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Arabica refers to a specific part of the family of coffee beans. Oh, come on, emails while I'm trying to do a podcast. Uh, it, it's a specific type of coffee bean, and it's a family. It's a higher quality of coffee bean that generally has a much better taste. The other variety uh, that is used in a lot of different types of coffee is called Robusta or Robusta, depending on how you like to pronounce it. Now, Robusta is a lot easier to grow. It grows at lower elevations. Uh, it generally has a very bitter, uh, a lot of people describe it as rubbery taste. So if you've ever bought a cheapo coffee that you brew or uh, you taste and it has like this intense bitterness and like rubber-like taste to it, it's probably Robusta. Uh, Robusta also has a much higher caffeine content in comparison to Arabica. Uh, so be aware of these coffee brands that are like, we have the strongest coffee in the world. Like, it'll jack you up. It's like, yeah, it might have more caffeine, but it will also rip your face off with disgusting, bitter rubber notes. So the first step in the whole process is that you are using Arabica beans. Now, just having Arabica beans isn't going to make it a great cup of coffee. There's a lot of attention to detail that goes into growing. Uh, 
Personally, I don't feel uh, like I'm a true expert on the growing of coffee. So one of these future episodes, I really want to find someone that can talk at length about growing uh, to really get an expert's uh, view on that. But the baseline things that I know to be true about the growing of coffee Uh, especially high quality, great tasting coffee is obviously origin plays a huge thing into the taste profile of coffee. Uh, The uh, longitudinal uh, area that coffee is grown is, is very limited. So it really has a lot to do with the longitude that coffee is grown at, and that's why specific countries you can grow coffee and there are others you can't. Uh, and so when you look at countries like Ethiopia or Colombia or Brazil uh, and Kenya, they might be on opposite sides of the world, but they're in that same longitudinal range that provides the great uh, temperature, sunlight exposure that are ideal growing conditions for coffee. Uh, and so any uh, coffee growing country that you you'll find uh, falls within those longitudinal range both in the northern and southern hemisphere Uh, and so the first the growing conditions have to be right for coffee to even be able to grow Uh, the next step is uh, elevation typically this is not always true but the higher the elevation the coffee is grown uh, it tends to create a more developed, sweeter uh, coffee uh, through the sugars that are transported to the bean through the growing higher altitude makes a much more complex uh, cup of coffee. So high altitude coffees are generally regarded as higher quality and better tasting than lower altitude coffees. And the different origins, uh, in the, it's a very popular term in the wine world, terroir. Uh, T-E-R-R-O-I-R, terroir. It essentially means where something is grown. Uh, It it generally relates to taste. So where something is grown has great influence on the taste. For example, uh, some things that typically reign to be true are uh, South American coffees tend to have what most people consider to be a traditional quote-unquote coffee flavor, that like uh, dark chocolate, nutty uh, cocoa profile. The the nuttiness is something that I find to be very prominent in a lot of South American coffees. Uh, Ethiopian coffees tend to be very fruit forward, really nice, bright acidity. Kenyans have a really nice, bright acidity. Uh, And so depending on where the coffee is grown, you're going to find different flavor profiles. But different, uh, the same coffee grown, or I should say different varieties of coffee grown in the same region can have radically different tastes. And so a lot of what goes into it Uh, The growing of it is also the harvesting of the coffees. Uh, There are two major ways to harvest coffee. One would be by machine. So essentially any large operation, any large farm uh, harvesting coffee is going to be using machines that shake the the beans off of the branches or the the cherries, I should say. The beans are inside the cherries. They shake the branches of the tree or of of, of really the bush and it, it gets the coffees to fall that are ripe enough to fall off. But during this process, there are some underripe uh, cherries that fall and there are some uh, overripe uh, cherries that land in all the same batch. And so you're not getting only the most ready coffees uh, falling when you go machine uh, harvesting. 
That's why hand-picked coffees is really what you're looking for when you're starting with a great cup of coffee. Uh, the, the laborers that are picking these coffees are trained to spot the coffees that are ready to be picked, that they're perfectly ripe. And partnering with farms that place a high amount of detail on this is key to get a start to a great coffee. And so they're being hand-picked going over the same coffee fields over and over to uh, go back and repick the coffees that weren't ready the last time. So uh, in the harvesting of the coffee, you've got only the ripe, ready coffees to go picked. Now you've got a coffee cherry, but we want the beans on the inside. So how do you do that? This is what's called the processing of coffee. Uh, the word processing seems to have a pretty negative connotation in a lot of the food world, like, oh, I don't want overly processed food. But in coffee, processing just refers to how do we get the uh, cascara, which is the fruit of the coffee cherry. How do we get the cascara and skin and fruit off of the uh, coffee bean on the inside? Uh, there are three main ways to do this. The first would be the what's called the natural process. Uh, this is very popular in Ethiopia. Uh, it's also very cost-effective and uses a lot less water, too. Essentially, what you do is you place the coffees on top of a bed. It's like a very fine uh, mesh net bed. The coffee cherries, fruit, skin, everything placed on top of these beds, and they're then dried in the sun. Uh, the sun dries up the cherry, and the skin uh, falls off. And what happens during this process is all the sugars in the fruit uh, also begin to ferment as they're drying up. And this is why naturally processed coffees have this crazy like fruit-like flavors as the fermentation occurs uh, within the sugars of the cascara it imparts these really like fruit berry-like notes into the coffee and so if you've ever had a naturally processed ethiopian coffee they're famous for their blueberry notes and it's not something like a tasting note oh, notes of blueberry it like hits you in the face sometime like a especially from the yirgacheff region and so the processing of coffee has a big influence on the flavor so if you ever see a coffee later labeled as natural, you're likely to get some pretty cool like fruit forward fermentation like notes. Uh, the next step would be uh, kind of a hybrid in between the, the three major processes and this is called the honey process. In the honey process, the skin of the cherry is removed but the pulp is uh, left to remain on the bean. And then the pulp uh, begins to uh, cause some natural fermentation as well. Uh, and so you get almost this hybrid. This is something you find in a lot of Brazilian coffees. And Brazil, uh, like I said earlier, South American coffees have that really nice like nutty cocoa flavor. And this honey process really plays nicely into that and can create some like really nice, rich, nutty flavors. And then the last one is called, the last processing method is called the washed process. The washed process, water is used to strip the fruit off of the cherry and this is typically what people refer to as really clean coffees uh, because there's not a lot of fermentation occurring because the fruit is stripped from the cherries there's still different ways to uh, incur fermentation in the process to manipulate the flavor of the coffee and bring out different notes but in the wash process, I would say that this is probably the least amount of fermentation that occurs. So you get really clean flavors. Uh, this is something that uh, my favorite, one of my favorite origins for fully washed coffees would be like, uh, like Kenya. Like a fully washed Kenyan coffee, they have a really bright acidity. 
and uh, fully washed coffee can allow these flavors to shine through. And uh, if you can ever find the same variety or origin of coffee in both natural and washed, it's really cool to be able to do a side-by-side comparison of how those flavors occur. Uh, the natural processed coffee will have a much more like fruit forward, f- like almost funky, like fermented like flavors. The washed coffees, the, the the flavors of the bean will really come through a lot more. You get you get some more uh, bright like uh, uh, more like citrusy notes uh, come through. But now I'm over generalizing because it all plays into everything I'm talking about. But so so far we have how the coffee's grown, where it's grown, the altitude it's grown, uh, sunlight exposure, the. The season can play a big part into the amount of rainfall. Is it a good growing season? Is it a bad growing season? Uh, there's how it's harvested. There's how it's processed. So at this point, uh, you've had the coffees. They're processed. And you've got the beans. Now, oh, so you've got the, like these brown roasted coffee beans inside of this cherry. No. At this point, they look kind of gross depending if the mucilage, which is maybe my least favorite word right after moist, uh, mucilage on kind of the outside of this cherry that's also removed during the processing method. And after this, you have your drying phase. After drying, uh, it, it doesn't, the, 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 it looks like a bean, but it's completely green. Uh, sometimes they can be different colors depending if it's naturally processed, if it's fully washed, honey processed. They can be a greenish yellow with some dark spots and darker colors. But uh, this is the unroasted coffee bean that's now ready for exportation. Uh, And so in the industry, people tend to call them greens because they're green coffee. So if you ever hear someone referring to green coffee, this just means that it's unroasted coffee. So this is now uh, put into, uh, well, there's two major things ways, I would say. And again, I'm overgeneralizing. I'm sure if there's any intense coffee nerds listening to this, I'm getting absolutely screamed at through the headphones. So uh, the traditional way that most people do it, especially with like Robusta and low quality beans, they're simply put into a burlap sack ready to be shipped out. Uh, What is the better way to do it is to use what's called a grain pro, which is a really sexy name for like a large, almost Ziploc type bag. It's a large plastic lining that goes on the inside of the burlap sack. So as exportation happens, uh, it's not being exposed to light. It's not for the burlap blocks out the light. It's not being exposed to oxygen because oxygen and sunlight are really the two biggest things that kill the quality of coffee. Also, uh, most of these are being exported on uh, large ships. And if you can imagine the elements being found on like a large uh, cargo ship, you know, the, the salt in the air, the, the, the just moisture, all these different things that can affect the quality of the coffee, uh, this Grain Pro helps to block out for that. And so that's a really good sign as a roaster if you're uh, buying a coffee that it comes in these Grain Pro bags because uh, you have a higher chance that it's not going to be affected by transportation. So. That would be kind of the very brief explanation of exportation. That's another topic that I would love to get a guest on to talk in depth about exporting because it's a very complicated uh, process on getting the coffee from origin to the U.S., especially when you think of some of these landlocked origins, like some of these Central African countries. It's really difficult to get coffee from landlocked regions out for exportation uh, through the, uh, the whole importing process and ready to roast. So now there's the importing side. 
Now, most uh, roasters work with importers. Because importing is a very difficult process, uh, there are importers that specialize in coffee. So we here locally in Minneapolis uh, work with uh, cafe imports for a lot of our coffees. We, they are conveniently located just in northeast Minneapolis. Uh, so for us, it's very convenient geographically, but they're also an extremely qualified and they're really good at what they do. They have full uh, ethical trading practices and they, they source really amazing coffees. And so someone like a cafe imports, there's also other, uh, there's really small boutique importers. There's uh, really large importers. I'm rambling on about the importer thing. Uh, I think you get it. But the importers are in charge of handling all the difficulties that go into getting it into the U.S. and then getting it into a warehouse. So at this point, you've got the coffee. It's been grown. It's been picked by hand. It's been put into a Grain Pro burlap sack. It's been shipped via cargo ship into the U.S. It's now sitting at a warehouse. uh, And this is where the roasters come in. Now, I should also mention uh, direct trade is becoming much more popular, uh, especially within specialty coffee, uh, because you're able to really track coffees and build relationships with growers. And so uh, direct trade is a term that's gotten a bit confusing. Uh, because what's happening a lot of the time, and this is the case for us, is, you know, Folly Coffee, we're, we're a really small roaster. We just launched a year and a half ago. Uh, we don't have the resources or the uh, scale to be able to buy large amounts of coffee to be able to fill an entire, uh, you know, cargo ship uh, full of coffee to be able to import directly. And so uh, direct trade for some means that they're in contact with the farm and they're able to, uh, but I don't really believe that's fully, truly direct trade. I I think even just months ago, I may have said that that is direct trade, but the more research I do into it, uh, just having contact with the farm directly just isn't enough to be able to call it direct trade. Uh, Direct trade coffee, in my opinion, would be someone who is actually going to the farm, has a relationship with the farm, is investing back into that farm uh, to be able to help them grow and create economic sustainability as well. But a lot of people say direct trade just by talking to it or even just visiting the farm and then using an importer. Uh, It's a bigger debate that might be uh, worth talking about. And I will say definitely worth talking about more in depth at a later date. So now you've got the coffee in the U.S., whether it's through an importer, whether it's through true direct trade where uh, the roaster is importing it directly themselves. Uh, And so at this point, you've got the coffee at the roaster. And this is another really common question is people say, is it the coffee or is it the roasting that makes really great coffee? And in the most annoying answer of all time, uh, it's both. Uh, You can take a great coffee, like a really high quality coffee bean, roast it terribly, and it will taste awful. On the flip side, you can't take a terrible low quality coffee bean and roast it to make it amazing. So it's a combination of having a great high quality coffee and roasting it very thoughtfully and intentionally to bring out flavors. And every roaster has a different ideology for what they're looking for in roasting. Uh, Our biggest thing at Folly Coffee is that we are trying to bring out the natural flavor of the bean without any bitterness. Uh, Now, the kind of big chain coffee stores, uh, 
the bitterness is almost something that people have grown accustomed to. So they go, oh, a nice, the, the, I always joke that bold and rich is usually flavor descriptors for what's going to be a very bitter, uh, burnt cup of coffee. Uh, smoky is another one. If you see these uh, descriptors, th- these are typically roasters that are roasting very dark. And I personally do not like Uh, dark roasted coffee because it covers up the flavors of the coffee when you get a dark dark roast like a like especially a french roast or an italian roast these are really super dark roasted those flavors you're tasting is really not the coffee bean it's the roasting that's going on the bean and so i liken it to if you got like a hamburger and you burnt it to a crisp it's gonna taste like bitter and burnt so when you get a really dark roasted coffee it's gonna taste bitter or burnt because like you roasted it too dark uh (laughs) and so in the roasting process essentially uh we use a drum roaster there are different types of roasters but most commercial roasters are using some variation of a drum roaster so if you picture a cylinder on its side this thing is being rotated there are like paddles uh rotors inside of the drum that rotate and agitate the beans uh heat is applied either directly or indirectly to the drum and over time depending on the amount of heat you're using amount of gas you're using amount of flame uh, that you have exposed uh, to the drum it's going to heat the coffee beans and it's all these different factors it's time temperature uh, are the two obvious major ones but there's also airflow there's ambient temperature there's beginning temperature of the coffee bean there's moisture content of the the coffee bean there's density of the coffee bean that all play factors into how a coffee should be roasted Now, as you drop the coffee into the drum, there is a sudden drop in temperature, and this is because as you drop it in, the moisture in the beans is released as it's heated up. So the water that's released lowers the temperature within the drum. This creates a temperature drop. And so in the temperature curve of roasting, the initial start of a roast goes down, down, down in temperature. Now there's a certain point where it turns when the moisture is no longer cooling, the beans are starting to warm, and this is the turn. Now after the turn is where the, and again, very top line here, there's a lot more that goes into what I'm saying, but it's after the turn where a lot of the flavor is developed. So it's very strategic about How do you get this curve to very smoothly get up to the temperature you want, the time you want, and being able to drop the coffee, which just means drop it out of the drum into your cooling tray to get the ideal flavors you're looking for. Now, as this happens, there are two what are called cracks in the roasting process. Uh, The crack is a rapid release of uh, air and gas from the bean that literally causes an audible crack, almost like popcorn. Uh, Now, the coffees we roast, we tend to roast very closely after first crack. So when we hear that crack, we know that it's not much longer than we want it to be able to get these really nice, natural, bright, vibrant flavors coming out of the coffee. What most Americans know Uh, in terms of coffee is being roasted well after second crack. Uh, The second crack, after you hear that and continue to roast, this is where oils start to develop on a bean. 
So this is a pretty common question is like, why are beans oily? Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Beans are oily because they've been roasted after the second crack. Uh, and actually, if you do like dark roasted coffee, I get it. There are some people that, for whatever reason, like that really dark, bitter, burnt flavor. I like it to rip my face off. Oh, yeah, good hearted cup of coffee. Uh, oil in dark roasted coffee is a sign of freshness. So if you're getting a super dark Italian, French dark roast and it's oily, that means that is fresh for that. But for coffees roasted after first crack, uh, you do not, you're not going to see those oils, but uh, they could still be super fresh coffees. Um, and then obviously color is going to be a clear indicator of, uh, of what kind of roast it has on it. Darker roasted coffees are going to be much darker. If you see like Italian roast, it, it's literally almost black. Uh, so that's the roasting side. A lot more goes into it than what I'm saying in that. Uh, I started sample roasting in, in launching Folly and, uh, or well, I was, it was just an idea. And I thought, oh, I could become the roaster. I'll just learn to roast. And as I started doing my research and started roasting more myself, I realized, man, if I'm going to do this, I need someone who really knows how to do it commercially. Hence Ken being our head roaster. Cause he's absolutely amazing at roasting. Uh, so where was I? So we have the beans have been picked. Uh, they've been grown at high altitude, at an origin uh, conducive to coffee. They've been handpicked at perfect ripeness. They've been processed in one of three major ways. Uh, they've been dried effectively. They've been packaged in a grain pro bag in a burlap sack, shipped to the U.S. at the roaster, roasted thoughtfully and intentionally. And then here's the crazy thing about coffee. It's not done yet. So you have a roasted fresh coffee. I'll touch. So freshness, I always recommend coffee uh, be drank within 30 days. A lot of coffee snobs, nerds like, like myself, I will admit. Uh, two weeks is super, super ideal. And then the most flavor drop off 90 days. So uh, that's where we cut off our coffees at, at retail is if it's past 90 days, we swap it, swap it out for fresh because it loses all those delicate tasting notes. Uh, so uh, in general, like ideally within 30 days, don't buy anything after 90 days. It's going to be very lifeless. It's still safe to drink. It just, it won't be it won't be a great experience. It won't be bad, but it just won't be great. You just kind of like stale flavors to it. So you've got a fresh, thoughtfully roasted bean from a great grower that's been sourced in a great way. You know, no, no exposure to uh, elements and all that good stuff. And then this is where uh, this is where it gets like way different from like beer or wine. Is at this point a brewery or a winery puts it in a bottle and gives it to the customer and says, "Here you go. This is exactly how we want you to drink it." Whereas with coffee, I can give you a bag of Folly coffee that we know on our own to be a fantastic coffee. We can give it to someone, and you know it could be messed up at the brewing part, and they go, "This coffee sucks. I hate Folly." <laughs> uh, and this is what's crazy is this opens up a whole new world of coffee preparation and brewing. Now, uh, the most often overlooked thing in brewing is water. Uh, 
the hardness of your water, the mineral content of your water, even coffee that, or even water that's too soft. So uh, like RO water, reverse osmosis water, it's not going to make a great cup of coffee. It needs the right balance of minerals, hardness, softness uh, to, to do great coffee. If you're really hardcore about it, I just recommend like spring water. Just go to the grocery store, get those big three gallon things of spring water. Uh, that's awesome water for coffee brewing. Uh, and so starting with great water uh, that's good for coffee brewing is a good first step. The most important thing for a great cup of coffee is the grind. Uh, the most common type of grinder used in the U.S. is uh, kind of those blade grinders. Uh, I call it the whirly bird grinder where it's just got blades that aimlessly... And they just like cut the beans randomly and you open up the thing and it's like, it's got some that are like dust, like a really, really fine dust. And you've got some like that are like chunks of coffee. And the reason this is not great for coffee is because the extraction of the water exposed to the beans is much different for a very, very fine grind versus a coarse grind. So if you have an inconsistency of the size of the grind, your cup of coffee is going to have over-extracted flavors and under-extracted flavors. Over-extracted flavors tend to be bitter, harsh. Under-extracted flavors tend to be sour. And so you're going to get this cup of coffee that's like both somehow bitter and sli slightly bitter and slightly sour. Um, and the reason those are so popular is because they're super cheap. It's like 10 bucks for one of those grinders. Uh, so I always recommend a burr grinder that is spelled B-U-R-R. Uh, flat burr grinders will create a much more consistent grind and consistent grind is a really, really big step. So anyone who asks me, hey, I I'm going to invest into brewing at home. What should I get? I always say a flat burr grinder. Uh, we love Barazza. We think they make awesome grinders. Uh, the, the Barazza Encore is their introductory model. It's a little bit pricey. It's like $140, but... It when you think of how good the coffee uh, will be after that compared to these flat uh, Whirly Bird grinders, well worth it in my opinion over time, especially for something that you're using every single day. So you've got uh, water appropriate for brewing. You've got a nice consistent grind, and then you go into the brewing method. Now, there are two major varieties of coffee brewing. Uh, you've got full immersion, and then you've got uh, kind of like your pour over. Or uh, And essentially what this means is full immersion would be exactly what it sounds like, that the grounds uh, are immersed in hot water. And then pour over would be any method in which uh, the water is poured over the top of the coffee and is filtered through. And so the most common variety of full immersion brewing would be your French press. Uh, I highly recommend the French press as a great place to start brewing at home if you're not currently brewing. Uh, when you brew with a French press, it leaves a lot of the natural oils and compounds in the coffee uh, because they typically have metal, uh, metal mesh filters that allow these compounds to stay in the coffee. And so coffees you uh, use in a French press tend to have a much fuller body uh, and have like more rich flavors to them. Whereas pour over coffee is filtered. And so uh, when you think of the literal pour over that you see at like awesome cafes, it's one of my preferred methods at home with filtered coffees. 
you get much cleaner flavors. And so going back to what I was talking about earlier with like washed coffees, having really clean flavors, filtered coffee, like pour over coffee, uh, creates really nice clean flavors. I love washed coffees, uh, pour over a, a fully washed Kenyan on pour over creates this really nice brightness, uh, on the French press. I really love South American coffees, naturally processed coffees, uh, in the French press. It creates a really nice experience. Uh, and, Pour-over coffees, people tend to describe as much more tea-like. They're very light in body. The flavors are more nuanced and delicate, and it creates an entirely different uh, drinking experience. And so uh, full immersion and filtered pour-over coffee are your two major methods. And so when you think about like a Mr. Coffee, the thing where you just press the button and it starts brewing, that actually is a form of uh, filtered pour-over coffee. Uh, the issue there is that those machines are very simple and the, dispers- uh, the dispersal of water over the coffee grounds isn't very consistent. And so like some grounds get super soaked in water and extracted nicely, or, or, or uh, and then there's some that remain dry. And so the, the extraction of coffee is not super consistent and it, it creates a decent cup of coffee but not as much as if you like you have uh, you know an SCA approved brewer specialty coffee association like I have a Baymore that is an automatic brewer but it, it's very um, controlled into when it disperses the water how it disperses the water uh, so if it, the, I think one of the most cost effective easiest way to make coffee at home manually is the French press uh, the pour over uh, requires a, a little bit more equipment. You do need a, a good kettle. Uh, obviously, the pour over brewer is not too expensive. It's literally just a cone uh, that you put filters into. Uh, and I, I think it's more fun to play around with. You have more control over the, uh, the way you're pouring the coffee to extract uh, into your final cup. It's a little more fun to play around with. And then there are uh, other methods. One of the mo- most popular uh so I'm just going to take a step back here and say the talk about kind of the, I guess, factors that go into brewing like time, temperature, and then pressure is really the third major one. So when you're talking about French press, you have complete control over time but and temperature, but you don't have control over how the grounds are exposed to the water. With pour over, you have control over time and temperature, and you can also control uh, how the grounds are exposed to the water uh, based on how you're pouring, how often you're pouring, uh, and then the. But you don't have control over pressure, and so there is a device called the AeroPress that's uh, almost like a combination of full immersion and filter where you have control over the pressure. And so uh, it almost looks like a, a large wide syringe with a flat bottom that has a filter on it. And so you fill this thing with grounds, you pour the water in, uh, and then you essentially allow the grounds to steep. And then you're going to push down on the syringe, which creates higher pressure, which creates a higher extraction and a richer, more intense uh, cup of coffee. And so that's a perfect transition into espresso, which is a weird thing because espresso is both the name of a drink. It is, in my opinion, really the name of a preparation method. So some people think that, oh, there's espresso beans and then there's coffee beans. And this isn't really true uh, because you can take any coffee bean and prepare it as espresso. 
And so espresso machines, what they do is they apply nine bar of pressure, which is uh, hundreds of pounds of pressure onto the water that is being pushed on top of the coffee through a very, very fine metal filter. Uh, so the, the fancy things you see baristas put, putting in and out of the espresso machine is called the Porta filter. Uh, you know, 18 to 34 grams of coffee, so I've seen some places do up to 40, are placed very, very fine grounds into the Porta filter. Uh, they are pressed down into a puck and then put into the machine that applies nine bar of pressure of the water into the coffee grounds. And this very finely ground, very high pressure atmosphere creates very high extraction of the coffee. And so despite being a very, very small amount of liquid that comes out of there, it's very highly concentrated. And that's why espresso is so insanely rich and flavorful is because of this intense extraction that's happening. Um, yeah. And so that is my rambling on what goes into a great cup of coffee. So the, the, the brew, it's, it's, it's really a combination of everything. And it's, that's why it's so hard when somebody says, uh, if I want a great cup of coffee, what do I do? Because it launches me into this whole thing. Uh, now what a surefire way to get a great cup of coffee is to go to a cafe that does it right. Uh, the easiest way is really just to I, a lot of the time, if I'm visiting a new city, I will just Google uh, best coffee shops in that area or best coffee roasters and then read the reviews. Some key phrases that I look for in the coffees that I really like is uh, what's called third wave coffee. And so third wave refers to uh, the first wave of coffee in the U.S. is like way back in the day, pre-Starbucks, where most people are drinking coffee out of a can, pre-ground, uh, gas station coffee, that's your first wave of coffee, all mostly Robusta, terrible quality coffee, it's really just used functionally, and then you get Starbucks comes along, changes the game, this is kind of your second wave of coffee, so they, uh, at the time in the 80s, Starbucks introduced people to a higher quality of coffee, uh, they grow what's called the second wave, a lot of uh, cafes pop up at the same time, a lot of roasters roasting this style of coffee, still in my opinion, very dark roasted, a lot of bitter flavors found in the second wave kind of style of coffee. And then you get the third wave of coffee. Uh, it's debatable about when this occurs, who really starts that trend. But the third wave of coffee is people who uh, are sourcing higher quality coffees and also roasting them in a way that you're tasting the natural flavors and you're not getting those just like flavors most commonly associated with coffee, bitter, burnt, uh, you know, smoky, you're not getting those flavors in third wave coffee. And so that's a phrase I typically will Google when I'm looking for like high quality coffees is third wave roasters. This is not always true, but third wave roasters tend to have better coffee than your first, your second wave. Now there's this whole thing that's fourth wave. And uh, I actually consider Folly to be somewhat of a fourth wave roaster where you take the same ideology as a third wave roaster, really high quality coffee, roasting it super thoughtfully. Uh, but instead of only going for intensity of uh, intensity and uniqueness of flavor, also going for drinkability of the coffee so that the coffee isn't just great for one sip, but that it's also uh, awesome for a full cup. And, you know, first, second, third, fourth wave. That's another topic to cover at another time. But... I do want to state, don't take everything I say as fact. 
Uh, everybody has a different opinion, a different methodology, a different strategy to every step in this entire process. These are just the things that I've experienced and my takeaways on what goes into a great cup of coffee. So with that being said, I think that's a great place to wrap up episode one of the Folly Coffee Podcast. How do I end this thing? I just have a great day.